I'm so glad you're with us here on The Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can save more and spend less. And don't anyone ever rip you off. Coming up in a few minutes in today's Clark Rages Moment, what you should look for to know that your stockbroker is ripping you off. And later yet, speaking of ripoffs, why are eyeglasses so much more expensive here in the United States than most other places in the world? I'll tell you what you need to know so you can protect your wallet. So I want to talk about something that has been emerging as an ugly trend at this point in the housing market. And it is interest-only loans. I want to tell you what these are and why they are poison to your pocketbook. A lot of people, when housing gets to a point that's not really affordable anymore for based on most people's income, people still want to be in that house. And they're looking for someone who will be the hero that'll make it possible for them to qualify and get in that home. Enter the interest-only loan. This is a product that caused more heartache and more foreclosures after the real estate bust last decade than you could shake a stick at. So what happens is for a period of years, maybe potentially as long as 10 You don't pay on the balance of the loan at all. You only pay the interest due on the loan. So if, let's just say you buy a house, just for argument's sake, for $300,000, five years from now, you still owe $300,000, and you continue to have to pay interest based on the balance being $300,000. And home values go in irregular cycles, obviously, up and down and sideways. I was just speaking with someone who bought a home in 2003 that they sold in 2018 after 15 years of ownership, and they didn't make a nickel on that house in 15 years. But they had a traditional mortgage, so... They were able to sell it, and they still left the closing table with some money because they'd been paying down on the balance over those years. When you do an interest-only loan, you're creating too much risk for yourself. You're living life without a net. And I don't want you to do a financial high-wire act. If it means you buy a cheaper home, or you wait a little while till you've saved more money so you can put down a larger down payment so the payments are more in reason. Do those things. But please, don't set yourself up for heartache, risk, anxiety with an interest-only mortgage. I despise them, obviously. Stephanie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Clark. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for taking my call today. Certainly. You are someone who has an appreciation for special things, 
art, that kind of stuff. And I just want you to know as we talk about this, I have no art side to me at all. <laughs> so well, I'll the do the best I, I can. To appreciate was my husband. It grew from there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what's the story? Well, my husband and I were on a trip and we came across an opportunity to begin collecting some art. We saw some things that we really liked and had the opportunity to purchase them. So we did. And when we came home, we realized, well, you know, Lord forbid our house burned down. Um, we've got an investment in these things. Not only do we like them, but they are there. There's an investment into, into having these items of art in your home. So we knew we needed to get them insured. And so we contacted our homeowners insurance and they're like, yeah, just send us the appraisal sheets you have and we'll get them added on there. And, you know, we, it was, you know, a learning curve. Are we just increasing our homeowner's insurance um, or is this a separate policy we need? And for right now, it's it's um, a separate policy that they decided to give us. They didn't keep it as part of our homeowner's insurance. Right. And that's not, and, un, that's not unusual. Okay. And so what happens with a homeowner's insurance policy is your there's contents coverage but the mm -hmm. coverage under contents that is for jewelry and art in most policies is puny so as an example if, if somebody really loves really nice jewelry you have to buy separate coverage for that jewelry if you have really nice art you have to buy separate coverage for it and depending on the homeowner's insurer it will either be scheduled, in other words, it will be separately listed as part of your master homeowner's insurance policy with an additional premium, or they may choose to do a separate policy for fine art or jewelry, which is what's happened in your case. Yes. And, and some of what I've read online um, is that... It's okay to get those kind of insurance policies, but not every um, insurance provider, just generic insurance provider, understands how to insure art. And they brought up some good points about having it appraised every four to five years and updating your policy. And some, some of the items that we bought are um, one of a kind. And so... If we ever wanted to replace them, you can't really replace them for the value that we bought them at because, say, as the artist may or may not still be alive, or you would have to recommission the item all over again, which is an expensive process. So how do you go about knowing that those items are insured for the right value well if they if they have find so, art insurer yeah so stephanie if they have substantial value you cannot just go with whatever somebody said to you over the phone and wrote some coverage on these things based on the original appraisals you had and you're probably 
in a situation where you want to go to, are there any art dealers near you, any galleries near you? That's a good question. Um, I think there might be one, yes. Because what you want is you want somebody in the industry to recommend uh, fine art insurer to you. Gotcha. And you want to you want to be with if you've got some art there that's really valuable, you want to make sure you're properly insured, which will just as you read online involve you having periodic appraisals and being with an insurer who appreciates and truly understands the art market. Gotcha. And that's where an art dealer or a gallery can be helpful to you because then uh, they are always helpful in a situation like this because when they know you have valuable art, they'd like to sell you more. And so they will be happy to give you advice and guidance on who would be a great appraiser to consider hiring and where they would recommend you go to get good insurance on your art. The reality is, though, insurance is only going to replace your money. It's not going to be able to replace the sentimental aspect of what you have and what you love. Michael's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Michael. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Michael. You got a question for me about what you're doing with your money. Well, I've finally reached a point where I've paid off my mortgage, and I'm wondering what should I expect to receive from the insur- from the mortgage company, and what steps do I have to take dealing with uh, my insurance and my local taxing entity? All right, great questions. Now, what paperwork you'll want from the mortgage lender varies by state. So what you should do is you should call uh, the county, uh, it'll be the courthouse or the real estate records office or whatever it's called where you live, and ask them that question. What do you need from your mortgage lender to show that the loan has been fully satisfied and paid off? And Should I... Should I expect the mortgage company to do any of this? Or yes. I... No, you, you, you find out what you're going to need, and it depends on your mortgage lender and the state you live in whether the lender as a normal course of action does the necessary paperwork that you want done. I had a uh, situation happen to me years ago where a mortgage loan that I had long ago, the lender sold the loan, but mistakenly was still having on its books that I owed the money on the loan. So I ended up with the same property being reported to the bureaus twice, the same loan being reported twice. And when I paid off the loan, I had to then, you're not going to believe what I had to do. I had to hire a real estate lawyer to file a motion to get the original lender to remove the loan as one on their books and, in fact, do paperwork to show that the loan was, in fact, paid off. That was, that was an extreme situation, and I hope that never happens to anybody else. But by, well, but by I t- know it has been sold a couple times over the 30 years. So have you ever seen on your credit report, is there a mirror 
listing for that loan or does it only show properly who's been servicing it? Just the current. Okay. So so I, I brought up a nightmare that's not relevant to you. I'm sorry. It's just post PTSD mortgage lending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I can imagine. So, so just call, find out what you've got to provide and what your lender has to provide so it shows the loan is done. Um, the okay. second thing you said is with your mortgage lender, they now have you listed with that lender as well. And if you ever had a claim, they would want to make a check to both of you. So you need to ask your insurer what proof they need to show that the loan, in fact, is satisfied. I've got the two with the taxes and the insurance. Are there documents that I need back from the mortgage company? Well, that's what the, uh, with the taxes, it doesn't matter. Because the taxes, you just got to pay the taxes now. So the tax bill will no longer go to the lender with money they've escrowed you'll be the one that will be paying that. So you just got to know when those bills are due, and normally a lender will, uh, a taxing authority will send you the bill, even if it's being paid by a mortgage company anyway. So you'll know that, and you'll pay that. And then again, with your insurance, you ask them what proof they need, and you'll be able to proceed to make sure that there is no issue with the insurer thinking you still have an outstanding loan. And congratulations to you, which I forgot to say, for being mortgage debt-free. Today's Car Courageous Moment is about something you've heard me talk about in general terms, and that is why it's dangerous to your wallet to do business with full commission stock brokerages. Well, Jason Zweig, the financial writer, has dug into the disclosures that you get from full commission stockbrokers And it is, in fact, really ugly, even what they'll disclose to you if you actually read all the stuff they say. Morgan Stanley says that that they are, in fact, in a conflict of interest and that they promote and recommend funds that have higher management fees. Huh, how about that? And Merrill Lynch actually says that they do not eliminate conflicts of interest and you go company by company you see this again and again where the full commission stockbrokers are in fact taking kickbacks that are legal these are not illegal kickbacks these are legal under the current rules how full commission stockbrokers work and the brokerages will push their salespeople who we call stockbrokers to sell you stuff that costs you more or performs worse because they want the kickbacks. It's a fact. It's plain and simple. They are not required to do what's best for you. So let me tell you something. Don't take my word for it. The Securities and Exchange Commission is who oversees the full commission stockbrokers. The head of the SEC in testimony just weeks ago, said about full commission stockbrokers, hidden incentives are incentives that are clearly inconsistent with making a recommendation that is in the interest of their clients. That that's what the problem is with full commission stockbrokers. 
I don't care how nice the person is you're dealing with. I don't care how they remember your birthday. I don't care that they sent your wife flowers on her birthday. I want you to know these people are not putting you first. They do not take on fiduciary duty, meaning that legally they bind themselves to do what's best for you. Hire a fee-only financial planner, someone who, by their duty to you, serves only you and not getting kickbacks to fatten their wallet. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. So I'm a four eyes Most of us as adults are four eyes. That's right. I wear glasses, and I've had to since I was six years old, I guess. So I'm not blind as a bat, but I'm not doing great with my vision. And so once a year, I have to get my eyes tested, and then I go get glasses. And I hear from people all the time how incredibly Clark-gracious it is what they pay for their glasses. And I feel like a spectator because I don't spend that kind of money. But we have with us financial writer extraordinaire, consumer writer extraordinaire, whichever you prefer to be called, the great David Lazarus of the Los Angeles Times. And David, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Except you keep giving me intros that I can't live up to. It's too hard. I'm sorry. All right, this guy's a dirt bag. I don't know why we have him on. Is that better? And, and we swing completely in the other direction. Thank you very much. Which do you prefer? Oh, I'll go with extraordinaire over dirt bag any day. Perfect, perfect. Okay, so you dig in deep when there's something that seems rotten with a company or an industry or whatever, and you decided that you wanted to find out why eyeglasses in the United States cost so much money. And what did you find out? Well, to cut right to the chase, we're talking about a $100 billion industry that is run by a near monopoly. And as a result, consumers are seeing roughly 1,000% markups on both frames and lenses. And when you put that in the context of other consumer products, all right, right out of the gate, that's outrageous. But you put that into the context of health care, which I think we can all agree glasses, prescription glasses fall into for many of us. And I wear glasses just like you do. We couldn't do our jobs without corrective lenses. So the idea that we're looking at these thousand percent markups, well, think of that in the context of EpiPens or other things that have similarly gotten attention. You've got to ask yourself, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? So why is it that, according to Consumer Reports, the average pair of glasses that people buy now is $414 for something that the frames themselves and manufacture cost as little as a little over a dollar. 
And, yeah, exactly. Well, I got launched on this when a colleague came up to me and said, yeah, I just got new glasses and they cost 800 bucks." And then I sat back and realized, yeah, and every time I get glasses, they seem to cost about as much. And I compared notes with others. And this seems to be common, even though there are places out there that offer cheaper alternatives. And I'll be writing about that in an upcoming column. The reality is, is that many of us are just completely flummoxed by the idea that our eyewear costs this much. And here's the bottom line, is there's basically just one company that dominates the entire optical landscape. And that company is called Essilor Luxottica. Two companies, Essilor and Luxottica, that merged last fall. And as it turns out, Luxottica owns just about every designer frame brand out there. Armani, Brooks Brothers, Oakley, Oliver Peoples, Ray-Ban, everything you can think of, they either own it or have a license on it. So when you go into LensCrafter and they start showing you different brands, they're showing you basically the same company's goods over and over and over under different names. And then what do you know? Essilor, the other part of that equation, they're the world's largest maker of lenses and contact lenses. So you put all that together and you've got a company that is really quarterbacking the entire marketplace. And then it gets even sneakier than that because you go to LensCrafter. Well, guess what? Luxottica also owns LensCrafter. You buy your frames there and use your iMed insurance. iMed, the number two optical insurance in the entire country. Well, guess what? They own iMed as well. So they are in effect paying themselves for you to pay inflated prices at the retail store that they also own. How did this ever happen? Well, because antitrust is something that's not really enforced anymore. Yeah, I think that's true to a great extent. I think also when it comes to healthcare, and let's remind ourselves, this is a healthcare story. We have overseers in this country that are keen to say, let the market do its magic. And the reality is, either there's not sufficient competition in the marketplace to do that magic, or consumers aren't sufficiently well-informed to be able to navigate the marketplace. And in this case, I don't think most people understand that you've got only one company that is catching you at every step of the way, from insurance to retail to frames to lenses, and that's why we're paying these egregious markups. And my thinking is, frames, well, you know, whatever the market will bear. When it comes to sneakers or, you know, or other things that you're going to be wearing, you know, fine, sell what you can get away with. Lenses, that's a different thing. Many of us couldn't do our jobs without corrective lenses, so we need a lot more transparency, pardon the pun, when it comes to lens pricing and lens creation. Because let's remember, this is a product that is almost entirely made out of plastic these days. And moreover, it's not some artisan with a file carefully putting that lens together. No, it's all done automated via machines. So the margins on this are off the charts. And I'm going to spill some beans here that I'm sure is part of the second half of your story, but the reality is that there are now some very aggressive sellers that people just need to know about that sell glasses at so little money, you're just going to assume they can't possibly be any good. 
Well, uh, every reader, a lot of readers, after seeing the latest column said, ooh, Zenny Optical, Zenny Optical. And obviously I'll be talking to them. Now, their business model is interesting because they're going to sell you the frames and the lenses online for a fraction of what you would pay at the brick-and-mortar place. Now, I've bought frames online, and it's a little bit, you know, you're taking your chances, but okay. I have never bought lenses online until today, as a matter of fact. I wanted to see what the experience was like, so I just completed it prior to our chatting right now now, and I'll let you know what happens with that. And I think increasingly, in the same way that many of us could never have imagined buying shoes online, for example, or pants, because you'd think, well, I'm, I can't try it on. And then we all come around once we discover that, guess what? Amazon makes it relatively easy. I think frames and lenses will gradually become more like that with people. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on the marketplace to be more competitive and hopefully will bring more players into the marketplace once they recognize that they've got a way to compete effectively against the big dog out there. So, David, everywhere I go in the country and I'm doing an appearance, people come up to me and say, Look at my glasses. Look at my glasses. They were $14 or whatever. Because <laughs> there are now all these online discounters. And I'm just dying to know, you said your last pair of glasses before you did the experiment today, how much were they? Oh, it easily went up to 700 800 bucks. Oh my goodness! Lenses. And, I have the designer frames that are owned by Luxottica, obviously, and and all the rest. It adds up very, very quickly once you start putting on the anti-glare coating and the prisms, and you know it's complicated. I, I never would have dreamed of trying that out except working face to face with an optometrist. Now I think I'm going to take that plunge and, and see what that's like. So, how much was your Zenny order? You said you you looked at oh, it I today. Use any. I went through a different company that it's an interesting business model. They're right here in LA and they're one of the few companies, unlike Zenny, that will allow you to send in your old frames and put new lenses in them. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool because I got lots of old frames. So I'm going to give that a shot. And it's a fraction. Let let me just say at at this point, it's a fraction of what I would otherwise pay for that service. The question now is, are they going to be any good? You know, right. Well, I will I tell you, they're not good. I will tell you, as a one-person focus group here, <laughs> I have bought from Zenny Optical for years, and I have been very happy. My most recent pair, and I wear progressives, frames, lenses, complete, plus shipping, were forty-one dollars. Wow! Now, according I- to Consumer Reports, though. I'm cheap even with Zenny because the average person spends $69 for their entire order with Zenny versus 414 from the average traditional shop. Well, I think a key factor here, too, is going to be vanity because, you know, I, I like a certain look and I take it very seriously, this idea of something that's going to be smacked out in the middle of my face. So, you know, that, that makes things like Warby Parker kind of interesting to me. And, and I think it's a, a landscape worth exploring. A lot of people have also been saying, look, if you're really married to the brick and mortar thing, Costco is something to keep in mind. And I think that's true as well. You can't bring your old frames to them and put in new lenses. They won't do that. But you will get a pretty good choice of pretty nice looking frames and lenses there at a significantly lower price than, uh, than your corner store optometrist. So the Costco glasses that I'm wearing right now, speaking with you costco ranked number one for the best customer service of any place you could get your glasses in the most recent consumer reports write-up their average cost 184 so you're spending uh almost two and a half times what you would with zenny 
but the absolute best customer service score. But I want to circle back for a sec, Clark. I would still maintain that when your product glasses, frames, is basically three pieces of plastic and a couple of bits of metal. And when your other product, lenses, are pieces of plastic as well that are produced entirely via automation, even those prices are nuts. And when we talk about these economies of scale, for example, in the United States, 126 million American adults are wearing glasses. Now extrapolate that on a global basis. You realize that the profit margins are off the charts because these guys, they have no R&D costs at this point. They have no significant manufacturing overhead to deal with. So it's all pure gravy. And that tells me as well that, that this marketplace is ripe for increased competition. Isn't that great? And you're part of making that happen. David Lazarus, consumer expert extraordinaire of the Los Angeles Times. Thank you for joining us on the Clark Howard Show. Always my pleasure. Have a great day. Rick is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Rick. How's it going? Hey, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Certainly. I've actually been kind of looking through different solar companies lately, and I had kind of the two big national ones come through, give me their quotes, as well as a few local ones. But my main question is, you know, they all kind of run the same line of, oh, we'll give you a 20 to 25 year warranty. But is there a third party that I can use to guarantee that if one of these companies isn't around, you know, in 30 years or 20 years? Oh, they're not going to be around. <laughs> let, let me first deal with that. <laughs> they're not going to be around in two decades. You know, anytime you're dealing with a pioneering industry, the chances that the people that would install a system for you going to be around is just those are long odds and maybe somebody will surprise me in the last two decades but i would be very very uh surprised by that so solar the thing about solar uh we had a solar system installed and the company that we had install it went and solve it and then we did have a need for some maintenance on it and we had to go find somebody else to do it now i don't think we would have been hurt by that because we would have had to pay for that maintenance even if the company that installed it had uh, still been around but it was like hmm, wow and you know a lot of solar companies have come and gone because it is a, a a relatively new industry so i don't know that would you recommend go ahead good uh, would you recommend just buying directly from a manufacturer and then having maybe a local installer do something like that? If the manufacturer stands behind their product, fine. Although the panels have not tended to be a source of problems after the fact. Uh, usually when people have had problems with their solar installs, it's been the um, the connecting pieces or the inverter that you have not the panels themselves. The panels have proven to be incredibly durable and reliable. And the good news for you, the efficiency ratios of the panels are so much better than they were even five years ago, but the cost of the panels is a tiny fraction of what they were five years ago. So you got a lot more output at a much lower price. And for people who live especially in the southwest of the United States, solar panels have a very positive payback. How large a system oh, yeah, are you okay. looking at putting in? 
So I'm thinking it's going to be probably around 11 kilowatts because we have a fairly large roof. Um, and they said that they can guarantee, you know, over time it will generate a certain amount or just send us a check if it doesn't, which I thought was pretty good. But uh, we're thinking of getting also, you know, a battery backup since our net metering is not really as, as robust as I'd like it to be. I can't believe you took uh, words about, right out of my mouth. I mean, you grabbed them right out of my mouth before I could say them, is that uh, <laughs> having with the cost of the battery backups declining and now several vendors selling them, I'm a real fan of doing the battery backups because then you're not subject to the whims of a political process that controls how you'll be paid for excess kilowatts. Instead, you store them and you use them. And then you have, uh, if you ever have power outages in your area, you still have backup power to your home for usually, typically, 8 to 12 hours, I guess. How much are you looking at spending for your panels? Um, so we're kind of, we saved up about 45000 over about 10 years, you know, just for various things because we knew we were going to get a house. But the system itself is only going to be around fifty. But then we were thinking about right before the uh, rebates from the government expire, that's when we'll kind of really pull the trigger on it. Because by then, all the solar companies are probably going to be, you know, scrambling to get more customers, knowing that's going to disappear. So hopefully their prices kind of drop a little bit more. Um, well, the big price drops... The, be around 50. The, the big price drops are involved in the panels. You know, that's strictly manufacturing. But with a home install, you do have a lot of variability in the cost because of the labor involved in installing them. So it's funny, I... I like how you think, but then I wouldn't want you to miss the time of having the panels generating electricity for you. But for uh, people yeah, who aren't aware, if you spend fifty grand on this system, the feds pick up fifteen thousand of that cost. So you net thirty five thousand. Thirty percent discount. Yeah. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. So the tax credit's good, yeah. really worth it, and I would spend some time. Reading online, there are a number of sources available actually from the federal government that help you try to figure out not the claims that you're told how much money you'll save on electricity by the people trying to sell you systems. Ignore all that and use the ratios based on where you live. You can figure out how much energy these panels will be able to generate, how much you'll save on electric bill, and then back into your payback period which these days seems to be in, uh, particularly in the Southwest U.S., around seven and a half to nine years from what I've read. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.